0: really
1: excited to have Mark Spears here on in just a second. Just want to note that we recorded this earlier today before Avery Bradley's comments, which we'll talk about later in the show, came out uh, where he laid out a little bit more of what the thinking is for the group that is hesitant to play. So we did not get a chance to discuss that, but I think it's still a, a great conversation with Mark. And then after that, I'll be on to talk about the news of the day, the NBA's return to play protocols, which I've got a lot of thoughts on, and also uh, Bradley's statement as well. So here's Mark. All right, I'm really excited to have on Mark Spears of the Undefeated. Uh, I've uh, been wanting to have him on for a long time because uh, we have some, uh, some fun, interesting enlightening discussions in the media room and uh, thought it'd be a good time to try to take those public a, a little bit. And uh, Mark's been doing some great work for the Undefeated. How you doing, man? man just trying to figure out the world, brother. <laughs> good good, good <laughs> luck. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, well, I mean, I, I think people who have been reading you will pro- are probably uh, will be helped in that regard. Uh, so I originally wanted to have you on to talk about how the nba is doing on minority hiring but uh obviously events have superseded that a little bit and you wrote a piece yesterday on the undefeated talking about just uh, your thoughts on uh what players can do here during this restart uh, that it would uh help advance uh the cause uh, of black lives matter and your thoughts on, you know, what Kyrie Irving's stance has been. So can you just briefly summarize that for us. Uh, what, how, what you think they could be doing.
0: Yeah. You know, over the course of the weekend, I just was kind of really conflicted about, you know, what guys, uh, that were anti going to Orlando were saying. And look, I have strong respect for, you know, Kyrie and Dwight and, you know, Lou Williams and certainly understand how they're feeling. Um, As a black man i also if somebody doesn't want to go play in orlando because of COVID, i completely get it i completely get it um but to not go there because you think it's gonna like dissuade the message of black lives matter or or police fight against police brutality or racial injustice i think that's a grave mistake um in which i wrote And, and the reason being is there's several reasons one I think NBA players will arrive to Orlando with the most sympathetic media that they've had in their lives in the history of the NBA. Um, you got media... Like, I always had loved to write about it, Want to write about it, but to be honest, most media were not like me. Either they didn't want to write about race issues or they were uncomfortable writing about race issues or they just were blind and didn't think the race issues matter Now whether you know it's kind of funny that like suddenly all kind of people are down for the cause but better late than never now you have a media that appears to be for the most part down for writing about these one of these these causes these problems these these nightmares uh like never before so you have an opportunity basically for three and a half months to get a bullhorn and talk about it um you have an opportunity to tell the NBA what you want. Okay, you need to make this kind of donation. Uh, us as players, we want the money to go here um, at the games. We want to wear t shirts of people that were victims to police violence. We, uh, with their names on it, uh, why don't we name the court uh, George Floyd Court or Black Lives Matters Court or just anything that could be a positive message towards racial injustice or police brutality. um, Have that in PSAs during the first half, have that in PSAs in the second half. Um, Just constantly keep the message going, play lift every voice and sing along with the national anthem. Um, Maybe as a really, really, you know, um, strong message before the first games, each team's first game in the first game of the NBA finals do a moment of silence that was the length of time that you know a knee was on George Floyd's neck as he died. Yeah. You know, just there's so many things you could do with this that time there. Tell the the companies that you're endorsing, tell Nike, okay, when you have that commercial during the game, there needs to be something about racial injustice in these commercials. There needs to be some kind of message. The same way these these companies have you know, all these coronavirus commercials now, we, we want those same kind of message. And say you lay, lay uh, put um, on the court Black Lives Matter's court, right? Then suddenly there's a trickle down theory to it. There's NBA 2K and the, the EA's NBA game suddenly have to change their court on the game. Yeah. You know, uh, if players that wear shoes that say uh, Black Lives Matter on the side or have a picture of George Floyd on the side, um, you know, that is more awareness. There's a young kid out there that'll want the shoe. Perhaps proceeds of that shoe being purchased can go to different foundations. Like, I, I just don't think, Nate, at this time that the NBA will say no to anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> this ain't, this isn't uh, Mahmoud Raous NBA. This is the post-Donald Sterling NBA. So this isn't the NFL. So if there is a league that is like, okay, what do you want? What do you want? They... Are willing to do it, the NBA is willing to stand beh- beside them. And so, now that you have the NBA's ear, tell them what you want. Now that you have the media's ear, tell them what you want. When the games start, now that you have the world's ear, give them your message. And it's inevitable that there are people that are racist people that love basketball. So, inundate them with that message during the game, In- inundate their kids with that message of equality during the game and it'd be hopefully the impact that the dream team had on the world the nba could have on the world during this time and also i think the nba could be the players could start a, a, a direction that the wnba could follow if major league baseball figures it out they can follow the nfl players can say well the NBA's doing that I, we want that too that's a great point um you know, Major League Soccer, the Women's Soccer League, all these leagues, you know, they could college sports, they could follow suit. But I think the NBA will be the first one to basically get that megaphone and have a direction that they want with a league willing to participate. And but by not playing, people aren't going to listen to you. I'm just being real. Like it, it takes away from the message. Yeah. It, um
1: yeah, it's one time, like, okay, you're in the news for not playing one time, yeah, whereas if you play, like, uh, you're in the news every day.
0: Like right now, look, at, look how people are looking at baseball right now. Disappointed. <laughs> Disappointed that they're not figuring it out. And so they're just going to tune them dudes out, and if baseball doesn't play, then, then that's just more eyes going to be watching NBA. So you know, they, I yeah. think they just have an opp- just a mammoth opportunity to, to voice their message to the globe like never before, and so not playing for COVID reasons, I get it, not playing because you think you're going to be muted, no, you're going to be able to yell louder than ever before.
1: No, I I am in total agreement with you, you look at some of the iconic moments going back to the 68 Olympics, or even Colin Kaepernick for that matter, I mean, if he just decided to not play, as opposed to doing the protests that he did while playing, I think it wouldn't have, in the end, been nearly as effective.
0: Well, I mean, let, let's go even further. 1968 Olympics. Yeah. What if John Carlos and Tommy Smith don't run? What if they, you know, don't make it to the medal stand? You know, what if they don't put a black fist in the air? Now, 50 years later, we're still talking about that image. What if Jesse Owens doesn't run in front of Hitler and win those four gold medals and basically shoot down his whole theory of how the white race is the better race, you know? Um, like, what if they don't do that? And so I think the NBA now has the opportunity to have a Kaepernick-Jesse Owens, you know, 1968 Olympics moment.
1: Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting. I, I was thinking of this before you came on, that you, when you went on uh, Ramona Shelburne's podcast and you, and you wrote about this too, during the Donald Sterling, I know that you were very vocal and i think of correct me if i'm wrong i think uh, you actually said it upset you that the players decided to play and didn't really do much of a protest but to me that's a different situation that's you're protesting against your own owner you're playing you're putting money in his pocket here you know i don't think people uh, are of the belief that the nba is the oppressor in this situation i think the nba hopefully can be a partner in amplifying the message
0: yeah no i mean look is is every owner in the NBA down for the cause? <laughs> like uh, I, I, I can't say that, you know. Yeah. Th- uh, there
1: is there is a, a list of uh, Trump Trump supporting uh, yeah. uh, owners that was making the runs recently.
0: Yeah. But okay, but but you still they're still in a position where they need you <laughs> in order for their team to play. Yeah. So you're gonna make them make them spend money that they otherwise wouldn't spend because they're gonna have to. Especially if most other owners are fall suit, what you know, the owner of the Phoenix Suns not going to do it because every you know, of course he's going to do it. So yeah, I mean, and also it puts the players in a position now for those owners that don't have the needed mindset or the right mindset for the world. You put yourself in a position where maybe you can have a conversation with them, and 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 perhaps let them bring them into a world that they've never. Never seen, or or never cared to see.
1: I, I would echo what you're saying. That I think there's, if you really want to be the most effective for the cause, uh, that just canceling the season isn't necessarily the best way to do that.
0: No, I um. mean I I could only imagine the ratings. Only imagine the ratings as the camera pans on uh, LeBron James's shoes with you know George Floyd's face on the side of it, and then pans on the, on the court black lives matters court. And then on the stanchion that says, you know, some charity you should, you should look at and then pans on, uh, the, 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 where the players not in the game are sitting and they have names of different, um, people that died due to police brutality, you know, um, like there could be a constant message with even out, even trying to set without, without even speaking during the entire game. Welcome back to black lives matter court. Welcome back to the George Floyd Memorial Court. They could say, they could tell them that's what they want to call. This is a neutral site. You can call whatever you want.
1: Yeah, I, I was thinking even having a, a a chance to educate people on you know what some of the measures could be to, like like policy wise to yeah. help reduce police brutality. I mean, yeah, there's a, 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 an endless list of things that, that could be done. Or you could done, put I on
0: a stanchion how to register to vote, like a website. Like that could be a voting impact in this and well. Prior to the election.
1: So, yeah, I I mean, I think, uh, and you've written pretty eloquently about that as well. I think it's, uh, I'd recommend everyone go check out uh, Mark's piece on the undefeated. He's also done a lot of excellent work uh, just uh, interviewing people uh, Mm -hmm. uh, about some of their experiences uh, as well. Um, So, I do want to talk about our our initial topic here, which I think is also apropos, and that is uh, minority hiring in the NBA, uh, in the coaches and, and executive ranks. And uh, um, so I guess the place to start here is let's just take stock of it. How, how is the NBA doing in that regard? In your opinion?
0: I, I think the better question is how are teams doing okay? instead of how's the NBA doing? Because as I've told Mark Tatum, who was deputy commissioner several times and he and Orris Stewart, um, Mark Tatum's the deputy commissioner of the NBA or Stewart is the uh, VP of diversity and inclusion they have been doing a really great job of trying to make teams aware of the need of diversity and inclusion and to to look at a diverse group of candidates when a job is available and give them candidates um they are trying but they don't own the teams so (laughs) i mean you can't i could own a bunch of i could be mcdonald's corporation but if somebody owns one of my franchises in Oakland, I can't force them to hire somebody black to run it. Sure. That that owner of that franchise has to want to hire somebody uh, on their own. And so there's 30 different franchises with 30 different owners with 30 different mentalities. So I think those guys are, are, are definitely trying the best they can to – educate teams to to push teams to to get them to look at um you know a diverse group of candidates and and I, and I think where a lot of times people go wrong is I don't think black america or people of color are saying you have to hire somebody black I think they're saying just give us a chance yeah L- listen to listen to us uh the got people that are qualified and let them try to sell themselves to you and if you think I'm the best after you know all the after giving me an opportunity then i hope you you hire me um i get and and so that's the problem is it's not the nba's problem is a team problem yeah like, that's where an there's important a lot of owners that all they you know they the chicago bulls they'll, they'll call their buddies who are white and ask them who they should talk to and then in the midst of doing that you don't bring anybody black in and so the chicago uh, a lot of uh black um, front office guys who have been, man, been working really, really hard to like get an opportunity to not even be considered for the president job in Chicago, which is Florida. And then they saw like you know guys that had questionable pasts or issues that led to them being fired that were white get interviews, and it just crushed them. One guy told me, he's like, so you're saying that their worst is better than our best? And that's not to say that Arturus Karnifchevich shouldn't be the president of the Bulls. Not at all. Yeah. I don't think anybody's saying that, but, like, dang, there, there wasn't nobody in a league that's 75-plus percent black that you thought was worthy to interview for this position. Imagine, like, an NHL where the majority—imagine the, if the NHL's uh, majority coaches and GMs were black. Yeah, that's— uh, that... <laughs> Like, like how would that how would that look? You yeah. know what I'm saying, um, and and I think people got to look at it on the other foot sometimes. So, the Bulls, you know, they they hired our tourists, but then I think they quickly realized that they need to be more diverse. The the Detroit Pistons, the same thing, when they basically pushed out Malik Rose, that left them being led by five white males, and I think that they were probably, from what I was told, they were going to basically. They were looking to replace Malik Rose with interviews scheduled for two white males or two white males in particular I know were up for the job, which not a problem, but they had nothing substantial set up with anybody black at the time. And, um, but I called that out in a tweet and then I think they kind of maybe changed course a little bit. Um, and I know they canceled one interview, but I can't go into detail into it, but, um, which I understand why they canceled the interview, like just bring the people in, just bring the best people in, a diverse group of candidates in, let them interview for the job and pick who you think is best. If it's a white dude, that's fine. But at least give the best an opportunity to best black men, men of color, women, like give the best humans a chance to get that job. And to me, to for you to just bring in white male candidates, you're you're either not looking hard enough, or you're really not trying to look hard enough. And so yeah. I think what uh, Oris and you know Tatum Stewart and Tatum are doing are, are trying to when these positions open to tap these owners on the shoulder and say, hey, you know, I'm give you some names. Like check these guys out, man. They so I think maybe perhaps they're they're uh, this contingent in white America that's like. They're trying to take all our jobs and blah, blah, blah. We're just trying to get an interview, man. Like, <laughs> we just want a fair shot. I I used to be chair of the um, National Association of Black Journalists Sports Task Force, right, yeah. which basically is a group that governs all the black journalists across the country, sports journalists. Very, very strong group. Well, about five or six years ago, I was invited to speak at the um, – Associated Press Sports Editor's Convention in San Diego. So I go out there, I go in this convention room, and there's about 200 people there, and I bet you 90% of them were white males. I think there was one black male sports editor. I remember seeing Lisa Wilson there, um, black female, who ended up working for the Undefeated and now worked for Athletic. But the room was predominantly white, and I asked them, like, why is it so hard for you guys to find people of color, black candidates and stuff like that for these jobs. And they like, we don't know where to go, which was like crushing to me. But OK, I'm going to tell you where to go. Anytime you guys have one of these positions, you call me and I'm going to give you three to five names of qualified people for these positions. And I'm not telling you to hire anybody. I'm just telling you to interview them, bring them in. These qualified people, because oftentimes when I mention this on you know social media is like, People just assume like these black folks or these people of color aren't qualified. The NABJ painstakingly makes sure that not only that when we push our, our um, membership for jobs, that they're not only qualified, that perhaps are even overqualified for these positions. And I don't know if you've noticed in recent years in terms of covering the NBA, that there seems to be a, maybe a little spike in in black sports journalists covering the NBA. Absolutely. And I think, we played a role in it, and it, it was amazing how many calls, I texts, I got after, like, "Hey, we, I got this job covering college, this," or, you know, we even got some. Added, I got uh, help get a black guy covering hockey in Colorado, you know, because he loved hockey. Like um, Julian McWilliams loves baseball, was trying to get in, and former baseball player. Now he's covering the Red Sox for the Boston Globe. You know, um, we were putting names in front of them that they never had before. They end up interviewing folks and loved them, and so that's that to me is I think something where the NBA and the teams need to incorporate is the ability. I don't know that you need a Rooney rule, but you need a give me candidates rule. Give me some candidates that are worthy in the job, so we could talk to them and let the best person win.
1: Yeah, I think it, when I've really been bothered by it is when you see teams. You mentioned the Bulls just kind of not go through the process, right? What like it's. Fred Hoiberg in 2015, they already knew who they were going to hire before. And it's not like Fred Hoiberg was some like unbelievable candidate at the time. Like, okay, it's one thing if it's like, you're going to hire a championship coach who, you know, just happened to to become available. Like, okay, then yeah, good. Go ahead. Just hire, hire that person. But like, if you're just hiring some dude out of college, like at least go through the
0: process. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you could, uh, NBA, former NBA head coach, Mentioned to me the other day, like how does Luke Walton get that job in Sacramento like that? And I, and I love Luke as a person, and you know, um only he could speak to that. He and the person involved yeah. could speak speak to that situation. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, but, it's Ron adive's yeah. Warriors fetish. I yeah. think is probably yeah. what it, like so so. But that's what it is, right? Owners get these like ideas in their head yeah. and just Any, like okay, it's with, someone I know, and I'm familiar with. with.
0: And, but you know, yeah. there was certainly some drama that Luke had to go through. Personally, you know, you know we yeah. don't have to get into all that uh, to in, in getting that job, but there wasn't a diverse group of candidates that were looked at for that job, um, even though I know Vivek cares about diversity more than most, if not most, you know. Um, yeah. But in that situation, it didn't. Um, even as great as the Warriors have been, um, you know, Mike Dunleavy Jr. got a job in which I heard there was – People within an organization that was like, "Yo, Bob, well, why didn't you like take a more diverse look at candidates? Like, how does Mike Dunleavy Jr. Like just a year or two out of being a player, become your assistant general manager Um, without look like if you look at the Warriors front office, um, the only black person in their front office that has uh, it doesn't even have the decision making power. They're more of a numbers guy. Yeah. So. You know, but nobody's really said anything because they're successful. So you can't just beat up on the teams that are struggling and making change and 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 not looking at diversity. You you got to look at the successful teams too and look at their front office and and judge if it's the right way. And you know, hopefully the next time, like the Warriors do have a, 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 a talented young black general manager for the Santa Cruz team who. I think, is ready to make that jump to their front office. But it's it's a crowded front office that is mostly white male. Uh, but, I mean, I don't want to just beat up on the Warriors, but, you know, Detroit, hopefully they'll make the right move. Chicago went, ended up being diverse. Like, I think any one of these jobs are open now, teams aren't just going to be able to, I'm just going to hire my boy or so-and-so's son or, you know, just that there's going to probably be more checks and balances and teams being called out if they don't go about things the right way, the diverse way, the inclusive way.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think the Warriors, and again, not to crap on them too much in particular because there are a lot of organizations that had these issues, but they're instructed to me, right? Like Kirk Lacob and Kent Lacob, I, think, uh, I know both those guys. I think they're both, uh, you know, they know a lot about basketball. I think they do a good job. But also, you know, both of them were the owner's sons and they were kind of hired without really having any kind of experience. They groomed them for the job that they eventually wanted them to have. Mike Dunleavy, you know, Bob Nyers kind of knew him. He's like, okay, this is the guy I want. I'm going to bring him in. And you know, that's great. Except the problem is when you're doing it based on who knows somebody or who's related to somebody, if the people who in power are white then the people they're going to bring in are always going to be white. And that's why going through the process, I think is so important.
0: Yeah. And, and I I always say that a lot of times it's not racist. It's just people hiring who they're comfortable with. Yeah. If somebody said about the bulls, you know, maybe they want to just hire somebody that the ownership feels comfortable going to dinner with, you know, uh, you want to hire your boys. I mean, um, most of my friends are black. That don't mean I don't like white people. It just, I guess I have more in common with, most of my friends, you know, with most of my friends who are black. Um, But I I think that teams have to – the NBA has to hold them accountable. Teams have to hold each other accountable. And, you know, you you look across the NBA, like you mentioned, Lacob's kids and, you know, uh, Stan Kroenke's son, Josh. I actually like what he did. Like Josh actually did an internship within the NBA. Josh played basketball at Missouri. So he went and learned a lot as an intern with the NBA. He went and uh, he played college basketball. So he knows who um, he didn't just walk into the nuggets and, and get that top position. You know, he, he's there now, but I like kind of what he did to groom himself. I mean, we have to be fair and also mention that Michael Jordan's kids have worked for him. You know, his brother his two of his brothers are at a high position in the organization. So it, I think there's kind of a gray area there, because if you own a team, like, I don't know that it is, I can't call it racist, that's just you want your family to run it, and so I kind of like the bus family, you know what I mean? Um, so that kind of makes it weird, but I mean, I, 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 or but in all phases of life and business, family-owned businesses, it's it's inevitable, no matter what your race is, that people are going to try to put their children in high positions. So I think that, you know, it is what it is, right?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, but the problem is when only one of the 29 yeah. or, or 30 team uh, owners uh, is black and you're, and you're going to go uh, and with this more nepotistic uh, approach, like these are the results you're going to have. And so, I, I mean, I do think I, I agree with you that the, that the league itself is doing you know a, a pretty decent job. But I also say that just in general, the NBA compared to other sports, or compared to just society at large, I think is doing a, a better job than most. But I also think still that uh, it, it's uh, improvements still need to be made.
0: Oh, no, de- definitely. Definitely. Um, a lot of improvements need to be made. Um, <laughs> and I, 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 I I talked to somebody yesterday about it and I said, you know what? I, I think actually maybe the NBA needs to do what like the national association of black journalists does. Like, I I, I see these, uh, black coaching associations and even a Hispanic coaching association getting stronger, I, I think they need to have a convention where they could, you know, voice their concerns, um, dis, displeasures, um, things that could make them stronger candidates, help them move up the ladder, get more into analytics, like all those things. Or in, in the, And there are a lot of bright Minds of color in the analytics world that are, are going unnoticed. But I, you know, if if you have some kind of convention where you make sure, like the the heads of teams go and not only listen to different plenary discussions and hear concerns and whatnot, but get to meet people, it could be great. I think the NBA needs to have a mixer at Summer League where all the teams are there, where you know you and want the owners to show up. You want your general managers and your presidents and your people that run your business to show up just to meet different people, get on their radar. I, I was telling the team president yesterday. I said, you know, when you're in Orlando, if you think a team has some, you know, you're going to be there for three and a half months. Anybody of color that you think is is intriguing that you like get to like to get to know better, like you got time to have a cup of coffee with them. Maybe you should be the aggressor in doing those kind of things. So, like. The National Association of Black Journalists has made a strong point to basically show the journalism world our database, our membership, our talent. And a lot of times you'll see somebody say, man, I met this kid five years ago and I didn't have a job for him at the time. But I liked him. I kept tabs on him. And the job I have now is perfect for him or her and their growth. And so it could not Always be a job immediately, but maybe it grows a, a seed into a, a tree that they they want to you know be a part of later. So I, I think the NBA should do something where you you have these like mixers or where these guys could meet people and they could introduce themselves. Where it's not just like, "Well, I, I don't know anybody." No, you, we're having these things, or it's mandatory for you to be there. So you could meet the up and coming talent of color, talented women. So when you're thinking about this next job, you know, your your mentality of uh, who the best candidates are will truly be diverse.
1: Yeah, I think especially at an entry level, you know, you don't see as much of that, right? I mean, imagine if you had minority candidates or women candidates being mentored in the way that, you know, Kirk and Kent Lakeup were mentored, right? I mean, you knew that they were always going to be a big part of, of the organization. And again, those guys are, are smart guys; they do a, a good job. I don't mean to single them out, but if you said if you had the same approach of really mentorship, exposing them to different parts of the organization, analytics, the G League, etc., you know, taking talented young people, I, I think that would be a, a real step forward. Yeah. Um,
0: but, but 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 the yeah. people with experience, need help, too, yeah. like uh, for like a presidential position being open. I, I, I mean, I think it needs to be all across the board, like for the Bulls to have a president position open and not have anybody black that they got excited about. Like someone said, well, what about, you know, uh, Troy Weaver in Oklahoma City? Troy Weaver didn't talk to them because he was told by somebody within their organization that they had already figured out that they wanted to hire our and it would basically be a, a token interview. So that's why he didn't end up talking to him. The thunder didn't stop him from talking. Yeah, he just didn't want to be used at that point, you know. Um, but you know, Troy Weaver, you know, Mark Hughes, like Eversley, like there's a lot of different names. Uh, Peterson in Brooklyn, like there's there's a lot of talented guys that experienced guys that are just you know been waiting for an opportunity um to to run a franchise uh so i, I think the situation is so desperate now and they need of help that yeah certainly start off at the ground level and perhaps every team needs to have some kind of internships uh in which they you know maybe maybe get some hbcu kids or kids of color or whatever but also ensure that when the big jobs are open. That uh, a, a diverse group of candidates from the top also gets an opportunity to to get in the door and and show that they're worthy of the job.
1: So, last question I, I wanted to ask you here. Um, I think this is a, an example uh, to me of some of the attitudes, that, and you, you you'll hear a lot of people say things like this. For example, so you you write a column. I think it was maybe like twenty eighteen that had uh 10 black coaching candidates and grant napier who is now no longer with the kings he he responded and he said well why don't you just make it 10 coaching candidates why does it have to be 10 black coaching candidates and i think that there are a lot of people out there who feel that way they're like oh well you you just want this to be a meritocracy like you know you how would you feel if they, they pushed 10 white candidates you know so why is it okay for you to push?" 10 black candidates. And, and I, I don't believe that personally, but yeah. just to be clear, I don't believe that personally, yeah, yeah. but that's something that a lot of people say. So
0: what is your response to that? They already know who the white candidates are. Yeah. So I'm trying to educate them on the people that they don't know, you know, and also I've been trying to do more things on not just black candidates, but candidates of color women, you know, um, Gerson Ros- Rosas is somebody I've written about, you know? Um, and so it's, uh, cause they need to be educated. <laughs> the Chicago Bulls certainly knew who all the great yeah. white candidates were, right? But had no clue initially who the black ones were, and then they got educated on it. So um, uh, I, I, I don't think there's a lack of knowledge of who the white candidates are. So it's uh, it's sad to hear that because you know if everything was fair, if the tables were fair, then I wouldn't have to write that list. Yeah, and that's the problem. That it magical, doesn't acknowledge mystical that day comes when everything is fair, then I'll stop writing it. But I I don't see that day coming. So look forward to my next list, hater. (laughs) Even with all the kumbaya now, and, and I love it. And I love all the great momentum. Like I was telling somebody the other day, like it reminds me of the time in the movie Malcolm X, where the white lady came up to Malcolm X and said, Hey, what could I do to help the cause? And he ended up brushing the lady off and said nothing. Um, But in hindsight, he regretted that. There there are a lot of white people who want things to be fair, who want black people to succeed. I've had white men in my life who have done amazing things for me since my youth. You know, uh, Mr. Thomas Eisenberg, one of my high school teammates, dad's a Jewish guy, always treated me like a son, and he helped me get a a job uh, during when I was in college, that really helped me financially and just always gave me love. You know, my first uh, copy editor was a guy named Bob Calvin, white man in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I was dealing with a lot of racism. He had one arm, one arm copy editor. And when I was struggling to get my writing together in my first job where I wasn't getting a lot of support, he was taking his time out of his own, you know, free time to help me out. My my high school journalism. Teacher was a, a white man by the name of Mick Van Valkenburg at Andrew Hill High School in San Jose. He worked for the San Jose Mercury News, very instrumental to me. Mike Monroe, who I used to work with at the Denver Post, and, and Mark Kisler basically took me under their wing from the day I walked in to Denver to help me out. Um, my editor at the LA Daily News um, were, was certainly very, very helpful um, that I had. Uh, there's been a lot of different people that have helped me, and there have been a lot of people that have fought against me and hurt me and didn't want me to succeed. I mean, ultimately, people are people, and we gotta judge them accordingly. And You know, there are some black people that have hurt me, too. <laughs> like You know, <laughs> Doug Jacobs was a guy at the LA Daily News who, who had confidence in me, too. Um, so, uh, I, I say that all to say that uh, those people don't need that list. They want the best people for the job. But, unfortunately most of america is not like that so i have to make that list i'm gonna to continue to write those kind of lists but i look forward to the day where i don't need to all
1: right well i think uh that's a, a good one to end on thanks so much for your time mark and i mean i have probably double the amount of questions we we're able to get to so we'd love to have you back on to keep talking about these issues at uh, some point thanks no, again
0: man thanks uh For you and your platform, man, being patient with me and going through the all the green—I mean, all the red tape and whatnot—but I really appreciate this conversation and you wanting to talk about it, and and that means a lot as well. So thank you. All right, thanks, Mark. All right, man, it is crazy to think that I've been working
1: with Helix Sleep since. here in the program, that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us okay so we still have a ton of news to get to here now and sham i had it the league gave to the players association today a 125 page document of what the protocols are going to be here for the orlando bubble and of course, uh, it would be rather exhaustive to go through every single point, but I'm going to go through a lot of it. I'll try to limit it to the best stuff. I did tweet this out earlier today. I think this is these protocols are best read in context of what the latest research is on how the virus uh, is spreading at, at this point. And that's mostly through close person-to-person contact. The closer, the more sustained, the less ventilated the area is the more the person that you are with is doing something such as breathing heavily, singing, yelling, screaming, talking, things that are going to result in shedding more virus than the greater potential infection. So uh, check that out on the Wall Street Journal. A really good article by Danielle Hernandez and company. And of course, uh, those listeners to COVID Daily News uh, will be up uh, on all the latest research. But let's start here. And I think the place to begin with, is the idea that players who elect not to participate will not be penalized. Now, that means that they're not going to get fined. There are all all these things that teams can do to players if they just decide not to play or don't show up. That's not going to happen, but they're not going to get paid for those games either. In fact, the formula is that for each game you miss, under normal circumstances uh, with the CBA, if games have to be canceled, and in this case, if the player decides not to play, Their compensation is going to be reduced by 1 divided by 92.6, so basically one ninety second of their salary uh, they are going to miss. The most that they can miss, though, is 14 games worth of salary, even if the team plays more than 14 games. And any player that wishes to exercise the, the right to not play is told to notify his team of this election by June 24th. Now that can change in one of two ways. Number one is if the player is a quote unquote protected player. And those are the players where either they or the team believe they're at a higher risk for severe illness if they were to contract the coronavirus. And if the team does not agree, there is a process by which a player may ask to be in a protected class there's going to be a neutral panel of physicians uh, that team and player can go to the other class of player who won't be docked salary for missed game is just simply if the team chooses to excuse them they could be totally healthy. they might be not at an elevated risk and so that's basically this will be an interesting one Number one, there could be circumstances where the team just wants to encourage the player not to play. For example, the Suns are very far away from even making the play-in game. I think Kevin Pelton in his simulations, he did 100 simulations and the Suns did not make it in any of them. If memory serves me, it was like one. And so if the Suns lose a couple games at the beginning, then all of a sudden, is it really worth risking the injury for, say, Devin Booker or DeAndre Ayton? The Wizards, if they're not going to come within four games of the eighth seed, Bradley Beal, is it really worth that? You know, maybe you end up just sending some of those players home to reduce the injury risk, and you finish things out with your other players. That would be a bummer for the competitiveness when you've got teams that are trying to get into the playoffs. And the Suns and the Wizards are not going to be at full strength, but that's something that happens down the end of any season. Anyway, I think where the interesting part will come in is if you have a player of some stature on a team who either doesn't want to play or just decides he doesn't want to play and the team doesn't agree. I think generally just with the stature that players have in the league, any important player, the team is just going to not want to alienate them for this relatively small amount of money to not pay them and so i i think i would imagine that especially if the player has some stature they will just be excused by the team regardless of whether they have the the medical condition or not this all of course is based on the current reporting i haven't reviewed the entire 125 page handbook and of course uh, that hasn't necessarily been approved by both the league and the players association either so much of this subject to change which is probably good because this is an evolving situation. So here's what the timeline is gonna look like. Phase one goes from June 12th to 22nd, so we're already in it, basically. Players who are outside of the U.S. have to return to their team's home market by June 15th. All other players must return to their team's home market by June 22nd, and mandatory testing will begin on June 23rd. The only exception is the Raptors, who, due to travel issues in Canada, they are gonna travel directly to Naples, Florida, And they're going to use the arena at Florida, Florida Gulf Coast University as their practice facility. And for those who remember, uh, I think they called it like Dunk University or something that they had an upset in the NCAA tournament. And there was a little bit of a spotlight on this university and it's like right on the Peach. It's supposed to be awesome. Uh, During this period, only individual workouts are permitted. Players have to schedule workouts beforehand. But basically, there's going to be no close contact among players during this period as the testing begins. And once the players are in market, there's an expectation this is the case for them early on, especially when there were physical distancing laws in effect and regulations in effect. But they are expected to remain at home with members of their household and only leave for training or treatment at the team facility or essential activities. And this is one of the weaknesses here, which you know, I don't know how you would get around this really, but anyone residing in a player's household is asked to limit their travel and exposure to other people. But, you know, again, if you're just going in for physically distanced workouts at the facility, this isn't going to lead to more exposure, but it is a weak point where anyone living with the player or that they're having contact with, uh, you know, the NBA has no jurisdiction over them, obviously. Phase two is that June 23rd through 30th at team practice facilities, players are going to be tested. doesn't say exactly how often Uh, players and staff are all going to be tested. Players are expected to remain at home and only leave for essential activities, basically just sort of a shelter in place kind of scenario here. The testing is going to be a shallow nasal swab and an oral swab, which is uh, a COVID-19 PCR test uh, That's just a normal testing to see whether you have the virus right now. And they're also going to do a serology test. That's where they check to see whether you have antibodies and therefore whether you've had the virus already. They're not going to use that super long, the nasopharyngeal swab that really feels like you're getting poked in your brain. They're not going to use that. And, And there's not really an indication that the shallow nasal swab is particularly less effective. For the serology test, there is a risk uh, of false positives, uh, but it doesn't ultimately really matter that much, I don't think, because the protocols are not gonna change for players who, in theory, have already had the virus. And we also, of course, don't know what level of immunity yet uh, is conferred uh, by people who have already had the virus. So that's this June 23rd to 30th period. The next phase is July 1st through the 9th, 10th, and 11th. The reason there's those three dates at the end is because they're gonna stagger their arrival in Orlando for among the teams over those three days. I'm guessing just because there's a a certain amount of testing and and processing that needs to be done and they can't necessarily do it over all three days or, or do it all in one day, I should say. So this phase three, again, still happening at the team practice facility. Now this is mandatory individual workouts as players try to ramp up their fitness and the team can tell them what they need to be doing from an individual standpoint. Still no group workouts though, and no more than eight players permitted in the team's facility at any one time. So you at least have a lot of players there, but there still is going to be physical distancing during this phase three from July 1st through the 9th, 10th, and 11th. And also head coaches can now participate in and observe these individual workouts. And again, the reason that group workouts are prohibited here is because you could still have players that might have the virus. They're still at home. They are still going out to some degree. People in their households might be going out. The NBA can't ensure that. And so you really don't want close contact among players and staff, even at that point. And you only really have will have had seven days of testing period before that so even if a player had the virus got infected right before they originally came in on june 23rd you might still have a period where you know it's only seven days after you might not necessarily test positive yet uh, even after seven days So then the next phase is they actually go to the NBA campus at Walt Disney World, taking either a chartered flight or a bus. And so that's, that's a potential time of infection there where you could have close contact. The hope is that if you've had really 14 days of players being tested continuously, and hopefully they're being careful that at that point, nobody is, or at least the probability is extremely low that anyone who's on those that bus or, or plane, and I'm sure they'll try to space people out on those planes as much as possible, that anyone will have the virus at that point. But it still would be possible. Also, in terms of numbers, 15 to 17 players are going to be allowed, and no more than 35 players plus staff are going to be allowed. And some players are allowed to bring a personal security guy, but that counts as part of the... 35 so that'll be interesting you know if a certain player wants to bring his own security guy and now someone who actually is going to be doing something there can't come along that that could lead to a little bit of tension so here's what happens when they get there and their arrival is going to be staggered uh upon arrival the players and team staff have to stay in their room until they return two negative pcr tests in a row at least 24 hours apart So who knows how long that could take for some people, you could potentially get false positive, but I've talked about with Hollinger on our pod, the idea is you're testing often enough that if there is a false positive, then you're going to have more tests in the future. And it would presumably reveal that no, it was a, a false positive. There's also going to be a proximity alarm that will notify someone if they spend more than five seconds within six feet of another person on campus who's also wearing an alarm. Players have the option to wear this alarm, but all team and league staff, possibly excluding referees, must wear the alarm. it would be interesting to see what level of adoption there is for that, but it seemed like they just felt that they couldn't force players and referees potentially to do that. One of the big issues that's come up is what the story is going to be with disney staff and it's unclear precisely what restrictions there will be on those Uh, some talk that if there is staff that's going to be in close contact with players say like a bus driver they might be subject to some more restrictions Uh, apparently there are some disney team members who are volunteering to do this uh, and you would also face uh, isolation on campus others you know probably say like a hotel housekeeper or say a cook in the kitchen who's not going to have contact with the with the players at all or or certainly not close contact they may be not limited to staying on campus they will be screened and they're going to have their temperature taken every day for symptoms does not indicate necessarily at least this document yet that those people are going to be tested every day However, as long as they are not having close contact, sustained contact with the players, the odds of them transmitting to the players based on this science, and again, I'd uh, recommend looking at that Wall Street Journal article for a good summary of this, but the science says that really absent close contact, there is not a high risk, maybe even not a low risk of transmission. If it's something where a housekeeper who is, an inf- is infected cleans a player's room and then he returns a half hour after that the chances of him getting an infection are quite low in particular if high touch surfaces are-, are clean but this fomite transmission with surfaces is not been shown to be a major driver of transmission. It really would take quite the chain, even if the housekeeper were infected, to infect a player who comes in 30 minutes later. And so that's part of why I think you, you, I've seen a lot of tweets from people in the media constantly. You know, every time there's a, a new update on cases in Florida, like it's getting tweeted out and... Um, the whole idea of the bubble is that it doesn't really matter that much what's going on in Florida around this because you're, the players aren't going to have close contact with people who are interacting to the public. That's the whole point of this. And so, yes, if cases are higher in Florida, you might have a higher chance of the Disney employees having the virus, though still a relatively low chance but then they're not having close contact with the players. And so the odds of them transmitting to the players are quite low. Everyone on campus has to wear a face mask at all times, except if they're in their room, they're eating, they're working out, or they're not within six feet of another person outdoors. Players also have the option of wearing the smart ring that is going to track temperature, respiratory rate, heart rate, and other measures that, again, is optional. I would imagine that that might be mandatory for other league personnel. So that's your stage right when teams uh, arrive in Orlando, supposed to last ideally until July 11th. But if you have players who can't get two, or, or players or staff who can't get two PCR tests 24 hours apart in a row, negative, then presumably they would continue to be isolated until that occurs. Next stage is the first stage in which, other than the flights, That teams are going to actually be engaging in workouts, practices, weight training, meetings, normal team activities where there's going to be close contact. And this to me here is the time I'm most worried about because you could have players potentially who were infected prior to coming to Orlando. It takes a few days, often as many as five or six after infection for Your viral load to be enough that it shows up on a PCR test. And so yes, you have this 24 hour period when you get there. But if you do the math on that, there is a chance that you could have an infection that might be undetected that the player acquired just before leaving for Orlando and they've started team activities now where you are having close contact. So personally, I would like to see a little bit longer of a quarantine period once the players arrive in Orlando. But of course, being quarantined, self-isolated in your room really is not something that people want to do. And there are quality of life components here as well. So this is something that has to be bargained with the players, but in particular, that time to me is the where I'd like to see that be a little bit longer. Still, though, I think when you have the amount of testing that's taken place over the two weeks before getting to Orlando, the chances and hopefully players actually adhering to these instructions and the people with whom they have contact at home adhering to these instructions, the chances of a player by July 7th having the virus and having gotten it so close to leaving for Orlando that it wouldn't be picked up before the self-isolation period ends. Very low, I would say, but I still think maybe another day or two I'd feel a little better about it. And again, you don't know, like there, it could be that the epidemiologists that the league is consulting with don't agree with me, or it could be that they wanted longer and they had to just accede to the realities of what people are willing to do. And and they, they're not doing that. I don't know what the story is there. So during this period now where you're first having close contact, you're doing workouts, practices, basically like a training camp, there's still going to be regular testing, temperature checks. Symptom surveys, pulse oximeters. Note that this doesn't necessarily say there's going to be daily testing during this period. I would hope that there would be. That's kind of what's been talked about before. So it could just be that that's you know this this is all coming from Shamshirani's piece. So uh, we're trusting uh, the way he chose to transcribe the information that that he got. And there's going to be all sorts of restrictions when they're not on the court uh, as well. Players are going to be requested to not interact really with. Players in the other hotels, there's going to be three of these hotels with different teams staying at each, kind of spaced out based on when they're expected to be eliminated based on the standings. which makes sense because they want to consolidate the hotels down over time as teams get eliminated. And they're going to have ping pong, golf, video games, card games, have access to playing golf. There are going to be recreational activities available. Though anytime you eat a meal with a player on another team, you have to eat outside that should help prevent potential transmission. They're trying to still allow the players to have a little bit of a social life, but also prevent transmission from one team to another. And players are never allowed to enter another player's hotel room, basically during this entire period. And players are allowed to hire a personal chef who would prepare meals outside of the campus and send food into the campus on a daily basis, in addition to players being provided meal. No one is going to be prevented from leaving the campus, but the expectation is that players aren't going to leave And in fact, if they do leave without prior approval, they will be subjected to enhanced testing, including that nasopharyngeal swab testing, the the deep nasal swab testing. And they would then be subject to a 10 to 14 day quarantine period and also a reduction in compensation for any game in which the player can't play as a result of being absent from campus. Now that is for unexcused absences for excused absences that period may be shortened to as short as four days for individuals with extenuating circumstances, and presumably that would be things like the birth of a child or some sort of family emergency, those sorts of things. Next phase, phase five. Over the next week, July 22nd through 29th, before the season is going to start on July 30th, teams will play three scrimmage games against other NBA teams. Those are teams that are in the same hotel, though. They don't want mixing of hotels where you could potentially spread infections to this whole other group that's at at a different hotel. And from July 22nd until the end of the season, players are allowed to socialize with players and staff from hotels, other than the one in which they're residing. But again, they're still going to be eating meals outside together. For example, not entering each other's hotel rooms. After the first round of the playoffs, any team that still is alive, uh, is permitted to bring alive in the playoffs. I should say, uh, is permitted to bring guests and they will get basically one guest room for each player. And here's the protocol for these guests. They must undergo three days of self quarantine and testing either in a house or hotel in the team's home market, or in Orlando outside of the NBA campus. I'm interested to know how the league is going to confirm that this actually was done. And then once they enter the bubble, the player guest, assuming, of course, that they didn't test positive, that guest can then come to the campus, but they have to remain quarantined for four days and be tested each day before they can join the bubble in full and guests who leave the campus will not be permitted to return basically it sounds like under any circumstances so there's your plan i think it's very comprehensive now how what is the enforcement going to be how well are players and staff going to follow this who's going to make sure that they follow it those are interesting questions it's hard enough to follow these restrictions when you're trying and so what is the level of adoption going to be especially if you start getting to the point where teams are eliminated from the playoffs or they're down in a playoff series and things look hopeless so you're going to see a reduced adherence eh, you know that's uh that's a concern and then also as i said i personally would like to see the period of isolation once arriving in orlando be a little bit longer before having close contact and, and beginning team activities So we haven't talked about it much on this show. A lot of this happened over the weekend. But as I'm sure everyone knows by now, the players had this big call on Friday, apparently spearheaded by Kyrie Irving. uh, There was another call on Monday. I shouldn't say the players. There's, I think, about 80 players on the call on Friday. 40 was reported on Monday. And it does appear that there is a group of players that's been reluctant to return to play in the belief that playing would take the focus off of the effort uh, to combat racism. And Mark and I talked about that a lot, but after we recorded, Avery Bradley uh, articulated a little bit more the position of what I loosely referring to as a group. I don't know how many people are really have pledged solidarity uh, with Bradley and Dwight Howard also, also had a comment and, and Kyrie Irving, but I thought that Bradley did a nice job of articulating things a a little bit better. So a, a few of his quotes here is that basically it's his belief that, you know, there needs to be action in addition to just simply being in the bubble, playing and raising awareness and that using their platforms is not enough. In his opinion, his quote is, we don't need to say more. We need to find a way to achieve more protesting during an anthem. Wearing t-shirts is great, but we need to see real actions being put into the works. And he also addressed the idea that, hey, by playing, you can use, make more money and use that to donate to cause. And he said, yes, I agree. Orlando will give the players checks to contribute back into their communities, but how much that bubble check are players actually able to contribute and getting really to the crux of the matter for him is why is all the responsibility being put on the players? And he said that his message was intended, quote, For all those who have more financial power than us, but aren't taking a bigger stance when our community needs you. And so it it seems that his focus here is in getting the NBA and its owners to also put more effort into anti-racism efforts. And and I think that's a a good sentiment. And so he went on to say the actual act of sitting out doesn't directly fight systemic racism, but it does highlight the reality that without black athletes, the NBA wouldn't be what it is today. The league has a responsibility to our communities and helping to empower us just as we have made the NBA brand strong. He noted that if the NBA does have plans to organize league wide action, those proposals haven't been clearly communicated to the players. So it does seem like these are a more concrete set of proposals from Bradley. And I I don't know how much this represents what some of the other players are are feeling. But it does seem like this seems more productive to me than just we're going to sit out because it's using the influence that they have to try and get others to join them in their anti-racism efforts. There's also a report from Stefan Bondi who noted that Kyrie Irving was not only trying to encourage Nets players not to play, but that he also suggested players starting their own league. And as with many of Kyrie's ideas, this one is not particularly practical, mostly because the vast majority of the league is still under contract to the NBA. You can't just break that contract and go play in, in another league. In some ways, there's it would be more feasible now just because with no fans anyway, a big part of what the NBA provides in, in addition to the brands of, of franchises is just the logistics, having an arena to play in, that kind of stuff. And if there aren't going to be fans anyway, you can really play from anywhere and just televise it. Having it be the NBA and all the resources that, that they provide doesn't matter as much as far as this league making money, but nonetheless, the fact that the vast majority of the league and pretty much every important player other than Anthony Davis is under contract past this summer would clearly make this idea infeasible. Kendrick Perkins suggested on TV, it's unclear exactly how He knows this, but he said that Kyrie, who of course is the vice president of the Players Association, was totally on board with Orlando, and then as soon as he found out that he wouldn't be able to go, because as an injured player, if he's not going to be playing, it wouldn't make sense for the Nets to bring him, that that's when he started ramping up this idea of not playing at all. And Maybe that makes a little sense, because he himself wouldn't have the platform of being there. Makes sense in that it's a believable narrative about his thought process, but... No one knows that for sure. I'm not sure where Perkins heard that, but overall it does seem relatively encouraging here and who knows how many people Bradley speaks for, but the idea that this group is not ruling out playing entirely, that they are trying to get teams and the league to take some action, which I'm sure the league to some extent was playing on doing anyway, but that seems like a position where the parties are going to be able to complete or continue to work together Even if, in fact, uh, Bradley and the others who are are not planning on playing, you know, who knows uh, how large a a group that is. But if it is a large portion, it it does seem like this is at least creating the opportunity for more dialogue. Got some player news to catch up on uh, as well, or team news, uh, I should say. According to Eric Horn of The Athletic for the Thunder, Andre Robertson would be ready to play now if the season hadn't stopped. We got asked about that in a mailbag a little bit ago. Roberson, of course, it's been more than two full seasons now since he tore his patellar tendon. He's had issues coming back. He's had to have additional surgeries. And then uh, Darius Baisley had that right knee bone bruise shortly before the hiatus. He was recently seen playing a pickup game in OKC, so assume that he's OK. For the Magic, Alfru faruq is not going to be healthy enough to return this season, most likely according to Roy Perry of the Orlando Sentinel. Jeff Weltman said that the Magic do not expect Jonathan Isaac back, but will still let his rehab dictate his timetable. And, and Isaac did have some comments indicating it was a possibility he could play. And Evan Fournier had a right elbow sprain before the hiatus. That is healed fully. He'll be ready when play resumes in Orlando. In Philly, you remember that Joel Embiid signed that contract that had some team protections where the final three years were technically non-guaranteed, but... He could meet some performance incentives in terms of minutes played that would cause him to guarantee. That has now occurred because the league has essentially reduced all of these incentives pro rata based on on the number of games that have already been played. And so based on that, he has, in fact, met that. So the final three years of his contract are now fully guaranteed. Not much that Philly would have done. Not much chance that Philly was going to cut him anyway, I will say. Uh, for Phoenix, Robert Sarver says he expects Kelly Oubre, who had that right knee meniscus surgery, uh, sounded like a trim. The original timeline was, uh, I think, in that four to eight weeks uh, that you usually see. Uh, but Sarver said he expects Oubre to be able to return uh, when the Suns enter the bubble. San Antonio, you remember they drafted Nikola Milatinov in the 2015 first round, kind of a- as a pick that would be able to stay in Europe so they could open up a little more cap space to fit in LaMarcus Aldridge. And John Hollinger and I talked about, I was actually uh, in the pod that we did talking about the best players who might potentially come over. And I was actually impressed with him. I thought he could uh, contribute, be a rotation big, at least in the NBA. But uh, he actually has now signed a three-year deal with uh, Seska Moscow. So unclear whether that has any NBA outs uh, or not. And I think that will do it. Please tell your friends uh, about this pod since we are starting to ramp up uh, again. This will probably be our last episode this week unless something crazy happens. But uh, especially now with the NBA coming back, we're probably about a month or so away from getting back to our five days a week schedule. And that'll do it. We'll talk to you all probably next week. At Bet365,
0: we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic.